Good morning, church. You know, as you walk uh, through life and they stick you in uh, Baptist colleges and you go to the seminary and do masters and, and even if you stick around, get old enough and maybe do a doctorate, you'll spend days, hours, weeks sometimes discussing the things in the Bible that you don't understand. They'll pull out little passages of Scripture and we'll argue for days and days about the things we don't understand. My biggest problem with the Bible is not the few things that I don't understand. It's the things that are perfectly clear that I don't want to do. And, and when, when, you know, I, sometimes when I first became a believer, uh, Baptists confused me. Because I read in the scriptures where it said, Jesus commanded, go to all the world. And you guys have played with that and messed with it to so much that now you have to have a special call to do what Jesus has already commanded you to do. That confuses me. And even though while it's the parts of the Bible that I so clearly understand, that give me the most trouble, there are passages that I have struggled with. And one of those I want to share with you happened right after the resurrection, before almost anybody but a few people had experienced it, before anybody uh, really believed it. In the last chapter of Luke, a few women go to the grave do what women have always done through history is without their names mentioned, without their stories really being uh, publicized, they just quietly serve and do the tough stuff. They'll go and love on a body, even though wrapped in those sheets were all of their hopes and dreams. And they get there, and Luke records how the tomb was empty and how there were men shining as if just filled with lightning. And those men, those angels, asked the women just this great question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And just heaven shouts to them about Jesus being risen. And the women who were first to know about the resurrection went back and did what women do. And I, I'm not inferring that you ladies, you talk a lot, but you are natural evangelists because you don't keep what you get to yourself. And they took it right back to the disciples and men are like they have been all through history because they didn't see it, touch it, feel it for themselves. They treated the women's story of the resurrection as nonsense. That's easy for me to understand. I do that all the time. All right, I, I'm a man through and through. I, I'm from the hills of Kentucky, and uh, we're, <laughs> I, I don't know whether to bless you or pray for you, but that's, uh, that's all right. I, I've enjoyed being in this country that you call Texas this weekend. And um, <clears throat> what I don't understand is what happened next. And, and the word said, you know, at the same time, there were these two men walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're talking about everything that had transpired. And, and, and then it, it's just something I, I struggled with for years and years. It said that Jesus began 
to walk next to them, and they failed. They could not recognize him. And they went on talking, and Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And they said to him, uh, you don't know? What is, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem this week? And, and he said, what are you talking about? And they said, about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what about him? They said, he was a powerful man, a prophet, a miracle worker sent from God. And they said with just brokenness in their heart, we thought he was the one who was to redeem Israel. But now he's dead. Their dreams are dead. Their, their hopes are shattered. And now he's dead. And they said some of the women went to the tomb early this morning and, and found it empty and came back with some story uh, about a resurrection. But, but we treated it like nonsense. And, and some of my colleagues went to the tomb and I found some cloth there, but nothing else. And we don't know what to believe. And I believe that in the early Greek and Hebrew or whatever language this was written in, in this particular paragraph, that Jesus looks at, him, at them and it says, uh, let's see what this version said. How foolish you are. I think Jesus said, hey, bunch of dummies. Do, do you not understand everything that I've been telling you that you've been told for the last three years? how the Messiah had to come and suffer, how he had to die, how a crucifixion always precedes a resurrection. Just pause there for a moment. Some of you find yourselves stuck in the middle of your personal crucifixion today. Hold on tight to that, hope's coming. And Jesus looked at them and said, how foolish, how how, how, what a bunch of dummies and slow learners you are. And he began again. It must have been uh, uh, it's just seven miles. They must have walked slow because he began with Moses and told them everything that the prophets had said about the Messiah and how he had to come and suffer and die. And he just talked with them all down the road. But what I failed to, to understand, what I couldn't believe, is how can they be so blind? How could they have walked with Jesus for three years? They, they've seen him raise Lazarus. They've seen him allow the woman with an issue of blood to touch him and be healed. They saw him cleanse the lepers. They've listened to him challenge the religious leaders. They watched him heal people close up and as a, at a distance. And now Jesus is himself. He's resurrected and they cannot recognize God in their midst. And for years, I've not understood how this could happen. For years, I could not believe that people who've walked with Jesus for physically a significant length of time, and when he shows up, they don't know who he is. I'd like to just leave that with you for a while, and hopefully you can struggle with it like, like I have for years. And I want to catch you up with my with my wife's and our kids and our story. Uh, 
Because back in the mid-90s, Somalia, as many of you all know, and some of you are too young to know, so let me just refresh some memories and, and as much as I can phrase what I want to say so that it's acceptable to the young ones in our midst. It was a mess. It was a mess. No one like us had tried to go to Somalia for 2,000 years. Isn't that a shame? My wife and I were told it would take us three to five years to get inside that country. You know what? God usually does not open the door until you're standing ready to walk through it because it was not a matter of years for us to get into that broken country. Once we were obedient to go, it was a matter of weeks to get in there. And in a matter of months, with help from folks like you, Southern Baptists gave us about $1.2 million. The United Nations gave us over $8 million, and we began feeding uh, over 50,000 uh, uh, people a day. At one of our feeding sites, General Ideed's, uh, uh, the biggest warlord, his people attacked that feeding site, killed 13 members of another country's army. They died protecting the nurses from your churches that were serving with us for anywhere from two weeks to two years. Uh, we're burying about 20 children a day before we can feed that which is left alive. We're doing mobile medical clinics, and we at first get out of our pickup trucks and later on get out of the Humvees, and you're greeted with children who have stepped on a landmine, people, children who have picked up a grenade, children who are, are just, I mean, minutes away from dying in starvation, and I found myself uh, uh, anger bubbling in me for many reasons, but one of the things was, well, what Sunday school class did I miss that prepared us to go to places like Somalia? What class did I sleep through in the Baptist college that would help me know what it's like to be sheep among wolves? What seminary degree should I have got that would have trained me to understand that 70% of those who follow Jesus today, who actually practice their faith, live in environments of persecution? Where, where was I supposed to learn this? Who was supposed to teach me that? What sermon did I not understand? What class did I not take? And where, it's just like, you know, I understand that, that Jesus uh, sends us as sheep among the wolves, but I had always been a sheep among sheep. And for the first time, we're behind enemy lines, and indeed, like someone warned us, these wolves eat little missionaries like me for lunch. And there is so much death and so much fighting and so little security. And there's 150 believers from Muslim background in Somalia. When we started there, by the time we were kicked out, only four of them were left alive. They killed four of our best friends on one day in 1994. And, and I wondered again, what class did I miss? What church service did I not attain uh, uh, attend that was to prepare us to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because I didn't understand what the ends of the earth were like. And I just want you to get that picture of all that was going on. There were about eight of us, 
feeding 50,000 a day, uh, hiring about 150 Somalis, and it's just an environment goes mad. We were there for a couple years before the Western forces came in, and we were there a couple years after uh, they left. We were about a mile away when Black Hawk went down. We were part of those who treated Somalis after that battle. 700 Somalis were killed, and they brought us women and children and others who had been injured in that battle, and it was just a mess. And it was as if the Holy Spirit had extra time on his hands. It was as if somebody else wasn't being obedient and I was getting their talents dumped on us because in the midst of all of that, uh, God began to trouble my sleep at night. And he said to me, I want you to go to Ethiopia. I, I said to God, who wants to go to Ethiopia? Back in those days, uh, communism was just ending. It was very difficult to get in there. I learned quickly that down in the desert regions of eastern Ethiopia was about 1.5 to 2 million Somalis. I learned that the last time that anyone like me or like my wife was in that desert region of Ethiopia among Somalis was a Presbyterian agriculturalist who was killed in the previous war, and he's buried there. That's not a real encouragement to be the next one to go there. And, and, it, and God began to trouble my waking hours. Every time I opened the Word, every time I prayed, in, 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 in all the busyness that was Mogadishu, God is saying, I want you to go to Ethiopia, to the desert region. I finally called our team of eight together, and I said to them, I I'm going to leave you. I'll be gone for a month or more. And they were terribly shocked, terribly unhappy. And they said to, uh, to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the Ogaden region, the eastern part of Ethiopia, where the Somalis are. They said, why are you going there? I said, don't know. They said, who wants you to go there? I said, nobody. They said, what are you going to do when you get there? I said, don't have a clue. They said, let's get this straight. You brought us in here. You're the leader of this team. We're in a war zone. We're in a famine. We're feeding 50,000 people. People are throwing rocks at us. They're shooting us. And you're the one responsible for us. And you're going to take off and go somewhere where you don't know why you're going, where you're going, what you're going to do when you get there, who you're going to see when you get there, and you're going to leave us and dump us here by ourselves. I said, you, you, you understand pretty much what, what this is about. And they looked at me. And they did not use very kindly baptized words. They didn't say, oh, foolish person. They used heel language from Kentucky. <laughs> and I know that, uh, that now we, we, I, we've come home after 30 years to a different world, and you're not supposed to call anybody stupid. Uh, they hadn't learned that lesson yet. And they used that quite often in their little speech to me. And so they were so, so convicted that I was not to leave them there by themselves that I just stayed. I, I was disobedient to the Holy Spirit, and I stayed in Mogadishu uh, for more weeks. Finally went back out to Nairobi to catch up with Ruth 
and the boys uh, for some time and did what we always do, that, that uh, the boys and I spend the day together with their mother, uh, letting them learn and see and as much as they can understand everything their parents have been doing. But it's in the darkest hours, the, 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 the late hours of the night, from midnight to 3 o'clock in the morning, that I would tell my wife things that at times I was afraid to tell God. Holding a three-year-old girl who weighed 11 pounds and who uh, I, I, I looked at her emaciated body sitting on a bed with not even a sheet on, on the springs. And I, I, I was drawn to her with just horrific fascination and she's staring out into space and three years old and she weighs a little bit more than a newborn setting up on that cot and I walked over and I ran my finger down her cheek and all of a sudden she focused on me and she gave me this huge beautific smile and I, I had to just step away from her. And I, my soul said, oh God, where in the world did that smile come from? And I went into another room and held children down as we set their bones that were broken in a nearby battle. And I came back and that cot was empty. And from then until now, part of my heart is two. The last thing that she did was to give me a smile that comes from the depths of her heart. And I'm telling these things to my wife late at night. And after I've wore her down and got her tired, I, I want to do the manly thing. I want to manipulate my wife. You know, I've got a PhD in manipulation. And, and, and so after I think she's half asleep, I begin telling her about God troubling my dreams and God troubling uh, me in my waking hours and how God is trying to push me, make me go where I don't want to go to Ethiopia and, and, and all of this. And I expect it. I fully, I'm honest, I fully expect it. My wife to say to me, oh, darling, you've got more than 10 people can do. Uh, your, your shoulders are bent from the load you're carrying. Uh, there's no way you can add another country uh, to your responsibilities. It is impossible to think of going to another one and a half to new two million people. Darling, I affirm you in what you're doing. I'm behind you. I love you. I'm praying for you. And she looked me in the eye. We're about this far apart on our sides in the bed. And she said to me with all the love that she could muster, It sounds like to me you've been disobedient and you need to get obedient. <laughs> now there's a clear word. Isn't it odd, guys, that sometimes we can ignore the Holy Spirit easily, but we obey our wives immediately? And I began to make plans to go to Ethiopia. 
It's hard. I'm telling you, it's six weeks of labor just to get tickets into there, to get uh, visas into there. At this time, nobody was adopting children from Ethiopia. It was a closed place. Ruth is working her fingers off trying to get me in there. She's gathering about 150 people in Nairobi who will pray for this trip. We're trying to explain to, chil to our children what their daddy's going to do when he didn't have any clue of where he's going and what he's going to do and, and didn't know. Isn't it horrible? I didn't know how to tell my boys that daddy was trying to trust in God when he didn't know anything else to trust in. Why, why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I let control of my life and let it be in the control of the only one who has control of it anyway? Never in the history of mankind has the word control been used 15 times in one sentence, like I just did. I went to see one of my best friends. Got kicked out of Somalia after working there for about 20 years. And uh, I went to Michael and told him what I was going to do and planning to do. And he looked at me and he said, Ripken, uh, you've done some things that have been pretty crazy over the years, but now I'm going to give you a Ph.D., in dumbness and I don't have any clue why you're doing this is the craziest thing I've ever heard anybody do and as he's talking to me he reaches into the drawer of his desk he pulls out a three by five note card and begins to write some things on it and then he gives it to me and I look at it and I see that he's written five Somali names common names on the card and I looked at this card, and I said, Michael, what is this about? He said, well, back in the late 70s and 80s, uh, some of us in Somalia led five Somali families to Christ in the western uh, part of Somalia. And when the Civil War came, we were forced out, and because of persecution, they were forced to flee from Ethiopia into the Ogaden region, the desert region, they were forced to leave Somalia into Ethiopia. We haven't heard from them for five years. We don't know if they're dead. We don't know if they're alive. The Somalis who have fled to Kenya, the Westerners who've been kicked out of Somalia, we pray for these five families every day. We love them. We heard that one of them had been shot. We heard that another had his wife killed. Another lost his baby. But again, we don't know where they are, haven't heard from them for five years, uh, but we pray and we love them. And here's what I want you to do, Ripken. I want you to put uh, their names in the pocket of your T-shirt. And when you're wandering around the desert of the Ogaden in Ethiopia, maybe by physical proximity, you can pray over these names and God will do something. And I looked at Michael and said, this sounds like voodoo Christianity to me. He said, is this any crazier than what you're doing? I told him to hush and took his card and walked out of his office. Maybe 10 days later, I thought Somalia was bad. But there were 70 relief agencies in there trying to feed the starving. There, there were... Uh, Thousands of soldiers in there protecting food routes. 
There, there, there were tens of thousands of people. There were literally up to $4 billion were spent to try to save the lives of the Somalis who lived in the borders of Somalia. And when I got off the small relief plane in the Ogaden region of, e of Ethiopia in a small town called Gode, yeah, uh, th there was nobody there. There was nobody there. Uh, the Ethiopian government gave me three French doctors to go with, one American who worked for the relief agency for the Ethiopian government. His job was to see how much food and stuff was in Gode for distribution out into the desert regions. The three doctors were to look at local medical care, and I was the sole distributor of water, food, and medicine over the desert region of Ethiopia, the size of Texas. And no one had been in that region for almost 10 years. And I was the only distributor of food, water, medicine, hope, and life. And they would send me out this direction from that small town, and I would get there, uh, travel maybe uh, 20 miles through the desert, and everybody in the village, their mouths are stained green. They're eating grass and weeds and tree leaves trying to stay alive. They've eaten all of their seed, everything that they've got. And, and, and the starvation is just so overwhelming. The next day, I go uh, south into the desert about 15 miles, and I find a village where almost everybody is sitting rigid, still, uh, frozen in time, and they have these big water-filled blisters between their fingers and in, on their ears, on their eyelids, between their toes, and they're in such agony and pain, they're just praying to God to let them die. And the next day I go out this direction, about 30 miles, and I find a village so full of cholera and typhoid that I just did this macabre thing, and every 30 minutes I looked at my watch, 10 people died. What class was that supposed to be? Where, where, do, where, do, where, do, you, where do you find a, a sermon that fits that situation? And, and I'm going out about five and six o'clock in the morning. I'm coming back in two or three o'clock in the afternoon, so dehydrated in, in that desert. Uh, and, and where many of you are from, you just know just going out there just how hard it is on your health. And I would meet the other uh, four guys back in a, a very basic a mud floor restaurant and we would rehydrate, or I would for a couple hours, and we would sit there and we would talk about what we did that day. And you know what we would make decisions on? They would make decisions on, we would make decisions on where I would go the next day with the two or three trucks and guards that I had. And we would decide every day, every day for almost two months, uh, I had to decide with a little bit of advice, who lives and who dies. And nobody should do that but God. Nobody. That scars your soul in ways that uh, you can't share in public. And so I'm doing this for weeks at a time. I have no one to help. And so we would go out if we could find cattle 
or camels or goats, some larger animal. We would pay kids some money, drive them into Goday, tie water, tie medicine, tie food on these beasts and give them a smack on the rump and watch them start wandering uh, their way home. That was a sophisticated distribution program that I could create. It's interesting that I learned more about working in that kind of environment from growing up in rural Kentucky than I did in seminary. It was, it was not a good time. And I'm in this restaurant just drinking and drinking and drinking, trying to get over my dehydration and talking to these other four men. And suddenly in this small restaurant, this tall, dirty, stained, filthy, emaciated, six foot three, six foot four Somali, looked like the wrath of God, looked like he just was so angry. He, he, he came into that restaurant he didn't look at anybody else around. He didn't look at anybody else sitting at our table. He stood above me and he crossed his arms and he stared down at me. It's really hard to eat when a starving guy's looking at you. And finally I said to him, can I help you? Is there something wrong? And he looked at me and he asked the weirdest question. He said, are you the one? Have you come? And he turned and he just walked right out of the restaurant. And the, my friend sitting there, my new friend said, uh, Nick, what's that all about? I said, I don't know. He's probably got malaria. His brain, you know, his elevator goes up, but his doors don't open. You know, he's just not right in the head. And, and, and we just went on and, and talked and ate and drank. And over the next hour, I was increasingly distressed and trouble, separate from one another, four more Somalis, dirty, ragged, their wraparound skirt, a mawis that the men wear, just torn and ragged. Uh, they came separate from each other, from different entrances of this stick hotel, of this stick restaurant, and they stood over me with their arms crossed, staring at me, until I was forced to ask them, can I help you? Is there something wrong? And every one of them asked me, are you the one? Have you come? And then they walk out of the restaurant. After five people doing this, uh, my friends are freaking out. Well, I am too. They said, Ripken, you told us you've never been here before. I said, I, let's get this straight. I've never been here before. I'm here this time because God made me come, and my wife, but God made me come. And, and if I get out of here, I'll never come back again. And, and they said, you told us you didn't know anyone. I said, I haven't been here. I don't know anybody. You told us you've never done projects here before. I don't know anyone. Are you listening? I don't know anyone, I haven't been here before, I've not worked here before, I don't know who these men are. Frankly, uh, they're scaring me, I don't know if there's mass, uh, 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 what's that big word, hallucination going on, I, I don't know what's going on with them, but, but I said, this has got me, uh, this got me worried. And we finished our lunch, 
And this was on Tuesday. And every day I went to a different village, to a different part of the desert to, to participate in a different disaster day after day. And on Friday, I did a, a foolish thing on the Muslim Sabbath. I left the Ethiopian side of this small town, the Amharic speaking, went through a dry riverbed into the Somali side of this small town, simply wanting to buy a Somali knife uh, for our youngest son. Uh, you could hear the hammers beating the anvil, but there's no way you can see where this is because in these so Somali cities and in their towns, they build their houses so random. You'll walk maybe 10 yards this way, then all of a sudden the street will change and you might go five yards this way and then you might turn back this way three yards and then you might turn left and go 20 yards and you're just in a maze. And so you're trying to hear where you're supposed to go, where you can't see where you're going. I walk in and out of these houses and I come to an end of a, a mud street about as wide as the, uh, the aisle between your pews there. And I make a wrong turn and I come up against a mud uh, uh, plastered wall of a house, a dead end. So I turn around to try to find my way out when I came to the first little cross street, uh, every little mud street between the houses, when I came to the first crossways, uh, five Somali men stepped out of the shadows, blocked the street, standing shoulder to shoulder. The outside men's shoulder were touching the mud houses on each side. And I look at these uh, most ferocious, largest men, Somali men I've ever met, and I thought, this, this can't be good. Is this not going to be good? And so I said, okay, what would you do if you were in Kentucky? So I flexed both of my muscles, and I walked up to them, and I put my hands between two of them to push them apart, and they put their hands on my chest, and pushed me against the wall. Now, some of you young folks will not appreciate this as much as the older folks, but I promise you, I was not singing every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Um, uh, I, I was terrified. And with my, my voice breaking, I said to them, what do you want? What are you doing? Uh, what, what is this all about? And this big, tall, dirty, emaciated, scarred-faced Somali looked at me and, and asked me, are you the one? Have you come? And I thought, oh, this is the five crazy guys from the restaurant three or four days ago. And I asked them, what's this all about? And they looked at me and they said, we've got to tell you our story. I said, am I going anywhere? And for two hours, they told me their story. They, they said, you might not know this, but we're Somalis. I didn't know how foolish they thought I was. Uh, everybody was a Somali but me. Uh, and, and they said, we're from Somalia. And they said, in, in the 1980s, people that looked like you, talked like you, came into our villages and they fed the hungry and clothed the naked 
and they treated the sick and they prayed over people and watched them healed. And most of all, uh, these people that looked like you, talked like you, uh, told us about a man named Jesus. And we believed in that Jesus. And then the Civil War came and we were severely persecuted and the tall guy showed me where he had been shot through the face five times. Another one told me about his wife being killed. Another told me about his losing his children. And they told me their story of how they fled from western Somalia into eastern Ethiopia the size of Texas. And they fled separately from each other. And the closest they had been for five years to each other was 500 miles. And they said to me that about four weeks before this moment in the alleyway, they were praying to God in five different locations, the same prayer with two parts. And the prayer went like this, Jesus, are you whom we were told you were? Or have we believed in a fairy tale? Are we going through all of this stuff uh, because some Westerners told us something once upon a time? Is Jesus the Lord or is he something less than what we have believed in? And secondly, separate from each other, all five families prayed, if Jesus, you are whom we were told you are, does anybody care? There's tens of thousands of believers in persecution asking that question of you today. Does anybody care? Does anybody care whether we're alive or dead? Does anybody remember us? Does anybody pray for us, care for us, love us? And they, they spent hours telling me that story. And they said as they prayed that prayer to God separate from each other, the Holy Spirit said, go to Goday, go to this small town where you've never been, you wait there, I'm sending you someone to answer your prayers. And they said to me, we've been here for almost a month, we followed every Westerner who got out of a plane off of the truck and they said for the last two weeks we've been following you that makes you feel real good and they said we've watched you we've watched you we followed you from village to village we've watched you greet and talk to our people unlike any other white person uh, in their language we've watched you hold our children We've watched you pray over our people. We have never seen anybody from the Red Cross, from the United Nations, from the other relief organizations weep over our children as they held our babies like you do. We've watched you and it looks like when you come out of your hut early in the morning that you sit on the front steps and you read from a book that looks like a Western Bible. And as everybody else is eating, it looks like to us that uh, you ask God's blessings upon whatever uh, tough piece of chicken you might have for the day. Uh, we've watched you. 
We've listened to you. We've experienced your tears and your words and your actions, and we want to know. We've got to know. Are you the one that God has promised? Have you come? Are you the one? And I'm listening to this story. I'm covered in dirt. I'm covered in sweat. My heart has just stopped beating so loud in my chest. I cannot, I cannot remember reaching in my pocket and pulling out this sweaty piece of paper and just reading uh, out loud, Muhammad, Mahmoud, Abdiaziz, Liban, Ali Ibrahim, and when I finish reading those five names, these five men having me trapped in that alleyway jumped away from me as in terror, and they said, where did you get our names? I said, I got to tell you my story. <laughs> and I told them. I told him about a young boy being found by Jesus Christ in a factory in Kentucky. I told him about going to a college in Kentucky and majoring in Ruth. I told them about her heart and, and the influence and the way that she has mentored and discipled us and discipled me and about our boys and about Malawi and malaria and South Africa having a third son and God's pull that we couldn't resist that put us in Nairobi and against all odds how we were able to get into Mogadishu and how we were feeding 50,000 and burying the babies and just told them the whole story of where they had fled, what they had not seen for years that we were experiencing every day, how the Holy Spirit began to trouble my heart and say to go to Ethiopia and how I was disobedient, how I listened to my team rather to my Lord and how I went out to Nairobi and I, I, I told the story to my wife and my wife said to me, it sounds like you've been disobedient and you need to get obedient. And how not knowing why or where or what for, God sent me into the desert of Ethiopia and your brothers looked at me and they whispered, they said, you are the one. You, you are the one that God has promised. You are the one that we've walked through the desert to find, now tell us, now answer our prayers. And on your behalf, on your behalf who have sent my wife and I to the nations for 30 years, on your behalf, at times unwillingly, always unknowing, but on your behalf and on behalf of believers and on behalf of the brothers and sisters in Nairobi, I said, you, you want to know the answers to your prayers? Let me tell you something, that you haven't believed a fairy tale. This is not once upon a time and live happy ever after. You need to know Jesus is Lord. He is King of kings. He's Almighty God. He is risen from the grave. He is on the right hand of the throne of God. He's God himself. He's coming again. You are not suffering for no reason. God, his hand is all over you and you believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord and the King. You can't clap for that. You can't clap for anything.
And I said, you want to know where I got your names? As I came through Nairobi, Kenya, your brothers and sisters gave me uh, your names on this card, and they said that you've been gone for five years, and they've never ceased to pray for you. They've never ceased to love you. They've never ceased lifting your names and your families up to God, and they love you with an eternal love. And your five sunburnt brothers in the desert of Ethiopia looked at me and said, that's all we need to know. And they turned around and started walking back into the desert. Now, I know it sounds like an excuse, but I was a busy man. I was going to villages every day trying to keep people alive and burying and wrapping in white cloth those who, who didn't stay alive and trying to figure out how in the world can the United Nations have warehouses like this filled with food and water and medicines and there's nobody to distribute it. And, and I had the thought, wow, the United Nations is a whole lot like the church, that we store it up when we need to spread it out. And all this stuff, I'm away from my wife, I'm away from my family, there's no cell phones. I'm literally doing 18-hour days, I'm losing weight every day. The food, you can't live on what we were eating. And I stayed there another three or four weeks, and I went back to Nairobi, and uh, my wife gathered our prayer warriors and our kids in the living room of our house, and she fixed a meal, and we broke bread together. And then they all sat on the floor, and I sat sort of like this to them, but in a more intimate setting. And just chronologically, I began to tell them everything I had done for those four to six weeks in the Ogaden, just one day after the other. And all of a sudden, I looked, and Ruth is weeping, and my kids are crying, and our prayer supporters are sobbing. And I look at them, and I said, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? They said, you don't see? I said, I don't see what? You, you don't see how God formed you in your mother's womb and picked you up from Kentucky and trained you through Malawi and South Africa and Kenya just so he could pick you up in Mogadishu and put you down in that desert to tell five lost sheep that Jesus is Lord and, and that they are loved and that they are prayed for? You can't see how Jesus walked right next to you all of those days and I began to weep and I began to sob and I thought I'm just like these dummies I'm just like these two men that the very risen Lord is walking straight beside me for weeks upon end, that, that for the very purpose that I was formed was being carried out, and I could not recognize the resurrection because I was so wrapped up in the crucifixion that was all around me. And I'm just like these guys. But years later, years later, when I hear myself telling this story, I will never forget five of your brothers representing their families 
persecuted, shot, beaten, driven from their home, living in the desert of Ethiopia, uh, living day by day would not be accurate to say how desperate their situation was then. I hear echoing through the years. Are you the one? Have you come? You see, I, I don't know what you think is standing up here this morning. You probably think this is somebody special, maybe, until you heard me speak. Here's somebody that's written some books, and, 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 and we've done 600 interviews in 72 countries. But what I'm the most known for is that I have a Ph.D. in mistakes. I, I have a proclivity of going in the tough places and falling flat on my face. And what I have found is probably what many of you have found, that life is tough and that what's probably true for everyone who has least lived 20 years or maybe less than that, that sometimes life knocks you down. And if you are in Christ, it's at that specific moment when Jesus reaches down and picks us up and says, I and the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God but me. I am Lord. I am King of Kings. And He dusts us off and He helps us learn how to fall forward. And when evil knocks us down, we get up. Some of you this morning just can't, you can't imagine that in your situation that God can bring any good out of that. Go with me to the desert of Ethiopia, and we'll take another look. Go with us to Pakistan. Go with us to Afghanistan. Go with us to brothers and sisters who are routinely persecuted for their faith, and you will learn again and again. It's precisely at the time when you are experiencing the crucifixion, the worst, that when the resurrection shows up, if you will just walk toward it. I want you to hear. I want your dreams to be troubled. I want your days to be troubled. Until you are obedient to walk across that street, until you are obedient to get into that family member, to get in your car, to go to that family member that you have fought with, until for some of you, until you're obedient to get on a plane and go to the nations, because in your family, across the street, once you park your car, when you get out of the airplane, there are literally, I can't number, I can't number the people who are wanting, wanting to know about you. Are you the one? Have you come? Girls, you know a girlfriend who's about ready to kill and abort her baby. You need to be the one. Men and women, you know the marriages that are in stress and you know the cry that's in their hearts to have the love that they've always dreamed about and they want to know across the street and across the oceans, are you the one? Have you come? There are hungry there are those who are afraid. There are those who live within walking distance of this church, and they don't know that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and they want to know, are you the one? Have you come?
And please hear this. If you're afraid to go to sleep at night because you're afraid you might die and wake up in hell, if you're not sure of your salvation, if you have never received Jesus into your life and you're saying, but Nick, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. If God can find five sunburnt brothers in the desert of Ethiopia, dare you believe he can't find you here this morning? Dare you think he doesn't know what crucifixion is? Dare you think that you can't share in the resurrection? I'm calling you to come. I'm calling you to prayer. I'm calling you to give your life to Jesus and never be the same again. And when Satan, when evil knocks you down, fall forward and get up. And you'll be four to six to seven feet closer to your goal. You see, it might not be, it might be that you never fully understand who Jesus is until you are obedient to his command if you are a believer. I am telling you, I am commanding you, he said, to go. Go across the street. Go to the next race of people. Go to your Samaria and get yourselves on the plane and go to the nations because they are crying out, are you the one? Have you come? And the nations are waiting here and abroad for you to point them to Jesus the Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, at times, we feel as if we, you, you know our hearts, we, we feel as if we got everything under control, our business is good, our family is good, and, and we, we, we have things good. But most of the times, Lord, we feel like a piece of china that's been dropped on the floor and there's no way to put the pieces back together. But Father, it's my prayer. It's just my prayer. Lord, I, I, I hurt so bad this morning because I, uh, it's not that I'm afraid or fearful, but I, Lord, I'm so concerned that you, you have gone to such an extent to find Somalis, and, and yet there are people here who are going to miss you. You have worked so hard, Father, to move us like chess pieces on your spiritual board so that people might hear and be encouraged. And it's my concern, Father, that people here are going to miss meeting you because they failed to walk where you've walked and where you're going. Lord, uh, I want you to do, I love this church. Jesus, I fell in love with this place. And I want you to show up in a mighty way. And I, I want Jesus, us to be the one, be the ones to go to be the light and the hope of the nations through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.